0: We shall turn now to the portion of God's Word read, the book of the Revelation, uh, chapter 14. We may read from verse 7, first of all, and then from verse uh, 15. Verse 7, the angel saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. For the hour of his judgment is come. Verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat in the cloud. Thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And you will see here, the, I trust, the connection between these two statements. The hour of his judgment is come. The time is come for thee to reap. The harvest of the earth is ripe. The time of judgment and the time of harvesting are here referred to at the end of this scene of time. Now, you will see that these statements are connected in the context of, with the fall of Babylon. In verse 8, there followed. Another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, we have sought to consider, particularly in chapter 17 the description that is given the identity of Babylon and the mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots, representing a great apostasy, the apostate church, still claiming to be the bride of Christ. We Noted in the past, the woman that bore the man-child carried into the wilderness where God had prepared a place for her. God kept her and preserved her from the attempts of the devil to destroy her child when it was born and then sought To destroy her, but God preserved her, and her pleas, prepared by God for her, is in the wilderness. Now, it is important that we keep in mind, of course, the significance of the wilderness in Scripture. The wilderness in Scripture is sometimes referred to as a judgment from God, when he sends desolation and turns the fruitful field into a wilderness. But the wilderness is the place of trial and temptation. You go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and there God is reminding his people in chapter 8, Of what he intended, what he purposed, when they in providence had to pass through the wilderness. In chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, verse 2, we read, Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And we know of some of the experiences as the children of Israel journeyed through the wilderness. God suffered them to hunger and thirst so that they might be kept totally Dependent upon him that they might learn the great lesson that man shall not live by bread alone but by the word of God. Now when we come to the New Testament, after the baptism of the Savior, what happened? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And the Savior knew the experience of being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. It was the experience that God sent him to experience in part that he, from that experience, would be able to sympathize with his poor, tried, and tempted people. He was tempted... And all points as they are, yet without sin. Now in the wilderness, what happens? John is mystified. In the wilderness, wouldn't he expect to see the woman that has been carried there on the wings of the eagle? But instead, he sees a woman riding upon a scarlet-colored beast. And this uh, woman holds a golden cup and uh, she rides upon the beast with seven heads and is full of the names of blasphemy. Now you go back with me just for a moment to the book of the epistle of James. And there in chapter 2 of that epistle, James is writing about the oppression experienced very often by the poor from the rich and the influential. And he speaks of the difference in their position within the kingdom. And then verse 6, James writes of chapter 2, Ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called. Now, what worthy name must James be talking about? There is only one worthy name that he could possibly be writing about, the name of the one that God has given him, a name that is above every other name. It is above every other name in worthiness and in influence and in authority, that worthy name. Now, how is that worthy name to be blasphemed? That's a question that needs to be addressed. How is such a worthy name to be blasphemed? Note in the context, James says, the name by which ye are called. Now, when uh, we go to the Acts of the Apostles, we learn something, that those who were the disciples of Christ were first called uh, Christians in Antioch. That's the name that is a worthy name Because it identifies those who have that name, it identifies them with Christ. They are as little Christ. They are Christians, followers of Christ. It is a most worthy name. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be uh, afraid of. The worthy name by which you are called. You're called Christians because of Christ, because of your faith in him, because you are followers of him. But what is James talking about? Blasphemy. What do we have when we go to Revelation 17? We have a beast. And that beast is full of names of blasphemy. And the mother of harlots is riding in the wilderness upon this beast full of names of blasphemy. And that is in part why we say here we have the identification of the great Harlot Church, the apostate harlot church that presents herself as the bride supposedly of Christ Himself. This, I believe the reformers were right when they identified this woman, Mystery Babylon, as the great Roman apostasy from the New Testament faith. But one of the things that we need, and I am absolutely, I'm sure you know, opposed to about everything to do with Rome and Roman Catholicism. But there was a time, you see, when there was basically two identifications in the world, the supposed Christian world. There was Romanism and Protestantism. That was it. Now, there were various disagreements within Rome, but the Pope held them all together. But in Protestantism, there developed various divisions. Now, those divisions have led to more divisions. But in the dividing, they've led to greater heresies than ever before. And I believe that when we come to consider this woman riding upon the scarlet-colored beast, We must in our day and generation include others beyond Rome. We have, I was just reading an advert, that in September this year, God willing, there's going to be a great campaign up on the Gold Coast. And Kenneth Copeland, Have you never heard of Kenneth Copeland? Don't worry. Previous to him, to his ministry, was a character called Kenneth Hagin. Now, he went around America claiming to have an anointing from God. And he spoke in tongues, And he supposedly healed people. But he would go to the pulpit or the lectern. And he would start turning the pages of the Bible. And as he did, he would start laughing. And he would laugh and laugh for five minutes and maybe more. And then he would leave the podium and he would walk around and he would still be laughing, and as he would laugh, he would be saying Glory, glory, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And then he would start to hiss like a serpent. And as he would hiss to people into their fees, he would put out his hand and they would collapse. And he would weave and hold. Uh, rows of seats people would be collapsing because he had divine anointing supposedly and he was supposedly imitating the sound that came on the day of Pentecost and he was as it were breathing out the spirit now one of his disciples was Kenneth Copeland. And Hagen claimed, you remember Elijah and Elisha, that the mantle of Elijah fell on Elisha when Elijah's ministry came to an end. Kenneth Hagen claims that he had passed on the spirit and the anointing To Kenneth Copeland. And Kenneth Copeland does the same thing. And he's coming in September to Australia. And he's coming to the Gold Coast. He and his organization today, well, it's probably more now, but a few years ago, it was valued at $760 million. You think of that. $760 million. You remember in Acts chapter 3, whenever Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray, they met a poor man, and he was a beggar looking for help what did Peter say? Silver and gold have I none. These men would be telling Peter, you know Peter, what's wrong? You need the anointing. You need the anointing of the Spirit. Peter had the anointing of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But this man he has made a great announcement that there's going to be a mighty revival in Australia. And it's going to be like the mighty waves of the ocean coming, crashing in against the shore. And there's going to be such a mighty work done that it will the news of it will spread all through Australia and to the ends of the earth. The mighty work that God is doing down under. Isn't that something to look forward to? I don't see too many people getting excited about it anyway. But, at present, What is he encouraging the Christians of Australia to do? To start sowing. Because you see, God's going to send the great harvest up in the Gold Coast. So we start sowing the seed now. Do you know what the seed is? Well, you probably guessed. Donate. Donate. He wants the money. And if people will start donating, sowing the seed, then there'll be this great, mighty revival. Now, these characters are everywhere today. You have them in Singapore. Pastor Prince, as he calls himself. And uh, you have all these characters Millionaires, multi-millionaires, representing supposedly Christ and the gospel. What are they doing? It was 2017. A great conference at Hillsong down in Sydney. And someone decided to go to it to discover when they got there was actually two conferences. One for adults, and one for the youth. And they were to be kept apart. And they had for the youth rag bands, heavy metal, all the worldly bands and entertainers. And as the intimation was made to the cues of young people going into the conference, they were told to dance their way in. And they were told to dance to the music. These are the kind of organizations, and these are the kind of men who are blaspheming the worthy name by which the people of God are called. They present themselves as Christians. They take the name Christian, the worthy name, and they drag it down into the gutter. And they drag it down in blasphemy against God and against his Christ. And that's why I say that we have come to a day and a generation when this great whore, this harlot church, this representation of apostasy has gone beyond Rome now and is embracing those who are ashamed, of course, to call themselves Protestants, but they blasphemously call themselves Christians. Now, why do we say this? Because The great battle has been raging between the woman arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, and the harlot woman. And she has the cup, the golden cup of fellowship, and the kings of the earth and the nations are drinking out of it. And they're in fellowship, and they're in communion with this Harlot woman and the system that she represents. But what has God been doing? Calling his people out. Come out of her. Come out of her. My people. You cannot have anything to do with this blasphemous religion. We call the Roman mass blasphemous. We must call much of this religion on the part of these charismatic Pentecostal tongue-speaking characters. We ought to call it the same. It is leading multitudes astray. And we see and have seen that there are those who follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And there are those who give their allegiance and worship the beast. And they're either followers of the Lamb, worshiping the Lamb, or they're followers of the beast, ridden by this woman, and worshiping the beast. But the day is fast approaching when God shall judge the earth. And God will not tolerate all this blasphemy forever. And we are told, in Galatians, Paul writes, be not deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And the sowing inevitably brings a harvest. And in this chapter 14, as we come back to it, we hear the angel intimating, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But when is she fallen? At the time the hour of judgment is come. The hour appointed by God. You remember what Jesus said regarding his own death and crucifixion. Father, the hour is come. He knew from eternity past that that hour would come in his humanity. He was waiting for it, and it did come. And he said, it cannot be delayed any longer. The hour has come. I must suffer now. I must die now. I must make an atonement now. That hour has come. Likewise, here is the intimation, the hour of judgment has come. Can it be delayed any more? The hour that was settled in eternity, it has come now. And how solemn the hour is, because Babylon is fallen. She who was sitting in the many waters, the people, the nations, dominating them, she was riding this blasphemous beast Now it all crashes down because God's judgment has come. But then look at what we read in verse 15 of Revelation 14. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on on the cloud. Thrust in thy sickle, and reap. This is not a sowing time anymore. This is now the harvest. This is now the time of reaping the harvest. Or the activity of sowings all past. And Now we've come to the results of the sowing. God is not mocked, Paul says. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The harvest will be according to the sowing. Nothing less, nothing more. Now what does the angel say here in verse 15? Thrust in thy sickle and reap. Why? For the time. Do we get that? For the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The time is come. Now you and I as we go through the book of the Revelation, we hear John informing us of things that he saw, things that he heard, that do not immediately or directly involve us. And we might think to ourselves, well, that event that's past doesn't involve me. But John also tells us of events that most certainly will involve us. And this is one of them. The time is come. The time was future. The time was in the distance. And we had to wait for it. But as time passed, the appointed hour was drawing nearer and nearer and nearer. And now the angel intimates. It is come. It is now upon us. It is here. What is it? It isn't something that any one of us are going to escape from. We're all going to be involved. What does he say? The hour, or the time rather, is come for thee to reap. Who is the angel speaking to? Well, you go back up to verse 14. I looked, and behold a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And I think when we go back to Daniel 7, we're not left in any quandary as to who is being referred to here. It is none less than the glorious Redeemer, God's Son. The one who was to set up an everlasting kingdom. And as we are told in Hebrews, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Here it is. The hour of his judgment has come. The time to reap the harvest has come. And here is the Son of God one like unto the son of man in his, seen in his human nature. And it is the hour when he is to judge. And it is the hour and the time when he is to gather the harvest. When we come to the book of the revelation, what do we see in his hand? Seven stars. What do we see when we go to the throne? The scepter in his hand. But it is not the stars here. It is not the scepter here. It is the sickle. And you will note in this passage from verse 14 down to the end, that word appears seven times. The sickle. God's sickle. It has a purpose and only one purpose. And that is to cut down in order to gather the harvest. The hour and the time has now come. What a solemn, solemn hour. Because Jesus himself made it clear. The hour was approaching when he would sit as judge. And what would he do? He would separate the sheep from the goats. He would do a work of separating. The hour has come then. The time has come. For him to do this work of separation. Separating the sheep from the goats. Separating the wheat from the chaff. Separating the tares from the wheat. You remember in the parable, Jesus told... An enemy went out after a man had sown seed of wheat. An enemy went out at night and under cover sowed tares among the wheat and they began to grow. They looked the same. No difference can be distinguished until the fruit begins to appear and then the tares are identified as not being wheat. What did the servants say? Will we go out and separate them now? Will we go out and pull up the tares so that the wheat will have better opportunity to grow and develop? No, Jesus said, leave them be. Let them grow together. Until what? Until the harvest Let them grow together. Together. Do we understand what that means? Together. The wicked and the righteous together until the harvest And here's the harvest, and the glorious Redeemer is to be the judge who will separate the wicked from the righteous. What a day John was seeing. What a solemn, solemn day. Put in thy sickle, and reap. For the time has come to reap. Now Jesus, when he sent out his apostles, he sent them out to reap. He sent them out through the preaching of the gospel to gather his people for whom he died. And in that sense, they are gathering the harvest of souls. Jesus told them that they were not to say, there are so many months the harvest, he says, the fields are already white on the harvest. So, labor then, because I am going to gather by effectual calling under the gospel, I'm going to gather my harvest. But this is a gathering through the sickle. This is a gathering of a, a harvest through the instrument of judgment. The separating. Been growing together. Now you know yourself that if you're feeling a bit uncertain, a bit timorous, well, it does help, doesn't it, to steady one's nerves, to give some confidence if you're beside somebody, accompanied by someone who has confidence, who has assurance, who has faith. How many there are, and they are tears. Growing with the wheat. The wheat has hope. The wheat has confidence. The wheat has faith. And yet the tares that have no faith, no hope for eternity, no assurance of peace with God whatever they can comfort themselves they can somehow or other reassure themselves, I'm in good company, my friend is hope, my friend is faith, my companions are looking to Christ, I feel good to stay in their company. But the day is coming, they're going to be separated. What a day that will be. Because as the Apostle John puts it, the angel intimated, the time. There is a time, we are told by Solomon, a time and a season for everything under the sun. Here's this time, it's not delayed, it's come separation is going to take place between those who followed the beast and those who followed the lamb. Separation between those who were in communion with a harlot and those who were in communion with Christ and his people. And look at what happens. He that sat on the cloud thrust in a sickle in the earth, and the earth was reaped. The earth was reaped. The day has been waiting, but now it has come. And what does it mean? It means the time of opportunity is forever past. There's no more time. Time of opportunity is forever past. Oh, there were those, and they, in their day, they sought the Lord. They followed the Lamb, where they're described here as in Mount Zion with the Lamb. These were redeemed from the earth. They were redeemed by precious blood. They were their sins were atoned for. And they have been gathered under the gospel to Christ. And they took the opportunity and providence that was presented to them. And when Christ was offered, they embraced him and they sought him and they put their trust in him. But others didn't. This is the time that is coming. It most certainly is. And when it comes, there will be no more opportunity ever again. Never. No more opportunity to embrace Christ. No more opportunity to be saved. Every opportunity is gone, past, forever. But in addition, it is the time of judgment. And those for whom Christ was not judged will then receive their own judgment. The wages of sin, that is death, will be meted out. The day of opportunity will have passed, and those who are without Christ, those who are still in their sins, those who have been following the lusts of the flesh, those who have been in fellowship with the ungodly world and the apostate church, what will happen to them? their judgment will have come. What a judgment. We see how those who were followers of the beast and they received his mark, they're tormented, in verse 10, in the presence of the Lamb. Can you understand what that will be like? Tormented in the presence of the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world and yet you cannot reach Him. He's not available as a Savior anymore. The Lamb that was despised, the Lamb that was rejected, to see Him, to see the Savior, That saves with an everlasting salvation. And to know he cannot and will not save me now. That's the scene. That's the awful scene. The day of judgment. When the books shall be opened. And every man shall be judged. How? out of the things that are written in the books and they're not man's books, they're God's books your writing and my writing won't account for very much then it'll be what God has written that will truly matter, the judgment but oh my, the time has come, the time of truth has dawned. The time of truth. What did Jesus teach? Many will be knocking, Lord, Lord, open unto us. Surely we should be allowed into heaven. Surely we merit a place in thy presence. Depart. Depart. Can you imagine that? The same Savior who said, come unto me. Come. Unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. How many times have you, some of you, heard that? And you imagine to yourself, well, isn't Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever? Surely he'll always be saying, come unto me. No, sir. Depart. Depart. I never knew. Yes, you claim to be a Christian. You blasphemed my worthy name. Depart. That's the day that John is telling us about. The day of truth has dawned. We will discover then the reality that maybe was hidden from you. The awful reality. I thought I was saved, but I'm lost. I thought I was a Christian, but I perish. The reality that I grew up among the wheat in a Christian home with Christian parents, and they were Christ wheat, but I grew up as a tear in the home. I grew up rejecting Christ. I respected my parents. I respected their faith. I honored them because of the way they taught me. But I grew up nevertheless as a tear, dwelling among the wheat. The day will come. And it is on its way the day when God shall do the separating. Christ will do the separating. Boys and girls, are you listening? Are you giving heed? You and the homes that you're in. Christian parents, Christian grandparents associating with the wheat and yet by nature you're not of the wheat but of the tares. The last offer of salvation one day is going to be made. The very last sermon will be preached. The time has come. You think of the glorious song in heaven. The angels rejoicing over a sinner brought to repentance. They will sing for the last time because Christ's harvest will be completed. The last word of repentance will have entered heaven through the mediator. The last penitent has been forgiven. The very last one has been forgiven. And the blood cries out for his justification. And the angels rejoice that Christ has embraced another poor forgiven sinner. But the time has come. The time has come not for preaching anymore. The time has come not for repentance anymore. The time has come not for rejoicing in heaven over a sinner being brought to repentance anymore. That's all past. The time has come for an eternal separation. The time has come for an eternal separation. Can you imagine that? if John had been directed to to describe it to us, later on in this book, we are brought to the scene of the great white throne. And all the nations are gathered before it. The great separation takes place. You think of it those that you were with, those that you lived with, those that you worshipped with, and you see the gap widening. How can it be? I see myself drifting into a lost eternity as I see my parents enter glory because there's going to be a separation. The parting of the ways, the time will come. Ministers watching those that they preach to departing into darkness to be tormented in the presence of the Lord, Elders that prayed for the lost and their congregations. Parents who prayed for their unconverted children and to see the day of reckoning upon them the eternal the eternal separation, as what John was seeing. The time is come for thee to reap. And then there is the gathering of the wheat. there is also the harvesting of the grapes of the earth. It is amazing. Now you see out there in the world so many references to things in the scripture and very often to things that are mentioned in the book of the Revelation. Man today still use that phrase, the grapes of wrath. The grapes of wrath, I understand there was an author wrote a book, The Grapes of Wrath. But you uh, will remember, I suppose, we often, well, it's referred to generally as the uh, great battle hymn of the Republic that was written in 1861 during the American Civil War and is Julia Ward Howe was observing the northern troops maneuvering and she was confident God's on their side they're going to win the war and she began to write what became known as the Battle Hymn of the, of the Republic, mine eyes have seen the glory Of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage. Where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fatal lightning. Of his terrible swift sword. Our God is marching on. You know, when you think of it, on the news, you were hearing it. God set Tasmania on fire. Now, very few people bother to recognize that. Few strikes of lightning, it's on fire. What do you think it's going to be like when God releases the powers that he presently controls. And he releases the power of his lightning to put this earth on fire. My dear friends, we seem to underestimate the power of God. And we seem to underestimate what his wrath will be like. And if it did not on your behalf or mine descend on the head of the glorious Redeemer, it's going to be your lot. If you reject Christ, the day of judgment is coming. The day of separation is coming the day when Peter says the elements shall be on fire. And yet Peter says men were mocking and they were saying everything has just carried on as it always was from the beginning of the world. God could set Australia on fire overnight and all their little helicopters and all their little firefighting machines and hoses and whatever else wouldn't be able to stop it. Men mock God as though he is powerless to stop them in their tracks. But John is telling us when the whore has gathered her adherents, And the beast has been worshipped. And the followers of Christ have been mocked and despised. And trampled on and persecuted. God is the time appointed for the day of judgment. And that day will involve every one of us. Many other things we can say, well, it's solemn, it's serious, but it doesn't involve me. The day of judgment and the day of harvesting is going to involve each one of us. And when the separation takes place, where will we find ourselves? It'll be either with Christ and those who were redeemed by His blood, or it will be with those who drank out of the golden cup in the hand of the harlot. May God enable us to prepare for that day. May he bless His word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we. Rejoice that we have thy word to guide us aright, to inform us of what is required of us, to inform us of what is before us. Solemnize us then, young and old alike, to recognize there is a day of judgment, and we have need to prepare for it. May we then run to Christ. May we flee like John Bunyan's pilgrim from the city of destruction to the cross of Christ. Bless thy truth to us, we pray. Receive us and pardon us for Christ's sake. Amen.